0: Welcome to Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. Here with Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and sleep and places like that. Hello. We are going to be talking about the media industry today and specifically the sports part of it. The economics of sports streaming and cables and broadcasts and all of that stuff with basically the person who knows more about this kind of thing than anyone else on the planet. Stay tuned to find out who that is. We are also going to talk about Mark Andreessen's deranged techno-optimist manifesto. We have a Slate Plus segment on consumer finances. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So let's start with media and specifically the arm of the entertainment industry that is sports. And I always like to think of sports as an arm of the entertainment industry. It starts making a lot more sense when you do that. The problem is, as someone who doesn't watch sports, I don't really understand how it works. And Elizabeth and Emily, I'm going to be very rude about you for a minute. So just, you know, forgive me. But you aren't entirely sports experts either. So we have brought (laughs) someone on who is Sarah Fisher. Welcome.
1: Hey, good to see you or hear you uh, (laughs) on this Friday.
0: Yes, exactly. We're recording it yesterday. This is the magic of um, podcasts. Sarah Fisher is the most intelligent person in the world, at least certainly when it comes to media and such things. She works with Emily and me at Axios. And you have been covering all manner of what seems to be really big things going on in the televisation of sports. And let's just start with the big thing, right? Which is that we all know that sports is really big money and people in sports make really big money and you, lots of billions get thrown around on a regular basis. And the overwhelming majority of that money is TV, right? That's like, 90 some percent of the money in sports
1: yep media rights for sure
0: okay so that's that's where we're beginning and then the next thing is the the 800 pound gorilla at least when it comes to american media rights is espn which is a subsidiary of disney yep and the big news this week was that disney came out and actually revealed how profitable ESPN is. And we assume that's because it's maybe possibly for sale?
1: Well, I think they're looking for minority partners, strategic partners, to help usher ESPN into the streaming era. So partners, we would assume, would be companies like an Apple or an Amazon. But you're right. The fact that ESPN is so profitable, Felix, I think is why its parent company, Disney, is not trying to sell it all out. It's trying to just sell a little
0: minority portion of it. Because Disney needs the profits.
1: Disney needs the profits. They are still running an unprofitable streaming venture, which includes Disney+, Plus, almost all of Hulu, ESPN+, and they need profits from other parts of their business to be able to build that and float it.
2: And
3: Sarah, one thing that was interesting in um the reporting on Disney and the ESPN profits is that ESPN is more profitable than the entertainment division, which I found really surprising. But is that is that simply because they're spending a lot on streaming right now and they're just not making a lot on streaming? And is the worry with ESPN that though it's profitable now, the, the profitability is coming from TV rights and that's gonna go away?
1: Yeah. So let me break it down for you. If you're ESPN, you make most of your money in two ways. One, through commanding carriage fees from your cable and telecom providers, and two, from advertising. And why it was such a big deal that Disney finally revealed ESPN's numbers. It's because we never quite knew, analysts had suspected, but we never quite knew how reliant ESPN was on that first bucket of Mm -hmm. revenue, which is Mm -hmm. carriage fees from telecom companies. And in order to have leverage to command high fees, you need to have high viewership. The challenge is, as you know, as more people cut the cord, viewership goes down, and you don't have the same leverage to command those fees. And so that part of ESPN's business, therefore, is in terminal decline. And so if ESPN was far more heavily reliant on advertising over those cable fees, it wouldn't be such an existential crisis for the network. But because it's making, you know, about Ten point seven billion dollars versus four point four billion on carriage fees versus the advertising. It's going to be right now in a very perilous position until it figures out how it can make the margins better in a streaming first world. And by the way, the answer there is it might not be able to. The okay, so best let me just might be behind us.
0: So, which. so let me just get this straight. ESPN, we, we've got the numbers now, it makes $10.7 billion a year on carriage fees and $4.4 billion a year on advertising. Is that right? Yes. And the carriage fees, presumably they didn't give us historical numbers on that, but we're assuming those are, if they haven't been going down for a while, they will start going down very soon.
1: Exactly.
3: Yeah. Remind me, there was a big kind of dust up recently over negotiations over carriage fees. I don't know if it was ESPN. Or, yeah. It,
1: yeah, it, it was. Disney, was right, yeah. Disney and Charter came to a head right before Monday Night Football was slated to kick off last month. And it was a big deal because when you can't come to an agreement on distribution and you don't have a contract, the programming goes dark. So for $15 million Spectrum, Charter Spectrum customers, they couldn't get access to ESPN. And that was a huge deal. The deal that they eventually struck about two weeks later is sort of the new model that we should expect in the immediate future for how these types of distribution deals will get done. And it includes giving some of these telecom subscribers, the Charter Spectrum subscribers, access to Disney streaming content. And it also includes you know, dropping some of Disney's other channels from having to be distributed as part of Spectrum's package. So the trend lines coming out of this are, one, we're going to have fewer sort of long-tail cable networks that are going to be available to consumers, things that aren't watched as much that you had to pay for in your bundle. The telecom Mm -hmm. providers are saying, we're not going to distribute, you know, Disney Channel 2 or whatever it is. And you should expect if you're paying for some of that cable package to get some streaming bonuses moving forward.
3: So cable's shrinking, really. I mean, the number of channels available will shrink, and Disney slash ESPN is losing its leverage. And this is all the slow or the fast, I guess, transition from TV to streaming.
0: Well, hang on a sec. I want to jump in here because we can all agree, we all know on some level that the number of people paying for an ESPN subscription on cable, whether they want to or not, is... Shrinking, but there are actually two different alternatives. It's not that everyone is moving from cable to streaming. One of the really interesting sort of subplots of this whole story is that people are moving from cable to good old-fashioned over-the-air broadcast where you pick up the game on an antenna and watch it for free on your TV. And this is a big deal, Sarah, I guess in Phoenix and maybe in other places?
1: Yes. So let me break down those numbers for you. It was a slow-moving problem of people ditching their cable subscriptions, but then after the pandemic, it became a fast problem. We aren't just shrinking, we are plummeting in terms mm. of cable land. It used to be that the vast majority of U.S. households, you know, roughly 100 million, subscribed to some sort of pay TV package, whether that was cable or that was satellite. Now you're looking at maybe 65 million, and we think the floor is probably around 50, 55 million, and that's coming very soon. So it's double-digit mm. declines every single year. It's We're reaching the bottom quickly. And to Felix's point. The reason that's happening is you have a bunch of these streaming subscription services, think about Netflix or Disney Plus or Max, and they're getting more and more expensive. Netflix just the other day said it's raising the prices in the U.S. on two of its tiers. And so consumers are in this rut where they're thinking, well, you know, I want to pay for Netflix because that's where all my premium sort of scripted series are. But I still like sports. I still like news, So how do I subsidize the cost? I can't afford cable and that. And so to Felix's point, what we're seeing a huge rise of is people paying for subscription entertainment, but then they're using free over-the-air broadcast antennas to get signals from their local broadcast networks for sports and news. And as a result, a bunch of different teams and leagues are starting to strike deals with local broadcast companies. Think about Sinclair, think about Scripps, to do their distribution. And that is very new. In the past, most of your local sports teams you would access through cable through these networks called regional sports networks. But as the cable bundle collapses, the financial model for the regional sports networks no longer works. And so those are all moving to broadcast.
3: I'm really excited about this, Sarah, because I'm actually old enough to remember when sports was free over the air already. I'm from New York and the (laughs) Yeah. And, and the Yankees, you know, were always on like channel 11 and then all of a sudden like the yes network came in and then you couldn't even see the games anymore. And I feel like it was really undemocratic. It was really, it it didn't feel right that you can't see your hometown sports team play, you know, for free on TV. It, It was kind of like awful. So I'm, it feels like a victory in some way that these agreements are starting to fall apart.
1: Yes, 100%. And you know what? We got so awful, Emily, that there, with these regional sports networks, some cable providers wouldn't distribute some networks. So if you were, for example, a Spectrum customer and they weren't distributing your local regional sports network, you might have to switch your telecom provider just to get your sports team. It was so not consumer-friendly. And you were forcing people who had no interest in sports to pay very high carriage fees in the cable bundle. You were passing the cost of these rights on consumers that didn't care at all about sports. So I agree this is the better model. The problem, though, that's going to arise from it is that When we had the regional sports network model, they were essentially commanding way too much money from the telecom companies who were then able to to pay too much fees to the leagues who were then overpaying players. And what happened is it completely overbloated the entire sports infrastructure. And so now for leagues that are primarily distributed via local RSNs, that's mostly baseball, and basketball, the leagues are going to have to figure out how they completely rewire all of their financials. And that's going to be painful.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Hello, I'm Immy Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
0: I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here ransacked my computer and I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe.
2: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: All right, I have a big question. Because I own a couple of baseball and basketball teams, I'm a multi-billionaire, and so really I'm just, me being selfish, I want to know what this means for my bottom line. You know, if I look at those numbers that you just gave me about the ratio between carriage fees and advertising revenue at ESPN, I'm just going to assume that as a baseball team owner or a basketball team owner, there's no way that I can make up in local advertising over the air what I used to be able to no. get in carriage fees. So no. as an owner, um, I'm losing a lot of money on this, right? This shift.
1: Yeah, this is not good. This is not good if you're an <laughs> owner. I will tell you, there's a very big difference though between the NDA and the MLB. The NBA under Adam Silver has done a very good job of nationalizing their brand. They can and likely will be able to strike very lucrative distribution deals with big tech firms, for example, when their rights come back up in 2024, the MLB has not done a good job of nationalizing their league. They don't have superstars that are known across the country. They are much more heavily reliant on that regional sports network distribution. And so this is going to be a lot more painful for that league than the NBA for sure.
2: Yeah. So what, what does this mean for the sports franchises in terms of what they have to do to adapt? I was reading one story about this where it noted that in Phoenix, the sports teams were sending fans bunny ears antennas directly <laughs> yep. to, to facilitate yep. this. Uh, what else are they going to have to do? And what's the, what's the long term plan for them?
1: it's very delicate dance. So in one end, you need the revenue to still come in. So you don't want to totally let go of cable distribution quite yet because it hasn't collapsed yet. And it's still, per ESPN's numbers, a very lucrative way and consistent way for the leagues, you know, to eventually get paid out. But what you do want to do is also ensure that you have high reach and exposure. And so what a lot of them are doing is they're experimenting with sort of Dual streaming and dual linear TV distribution rights. The best example of that would be the NFL, which has given Amazon exclusive distribution of Thursday nights. But you'll note when they did their first full season with Amazon, the viewership dropped. And so Mm. it was a little bit of a pain point for them because there's natural friction when you are asking consumers to try a new platform or a new medium. The one other way they're hedging, to your point, Elizabeth, is they're leaning into local broadcasts as opposed to these regional sports networks because they know that people can still access broadcasts even if they cut the cord. And broadcast tends to be have a very high reach. Most people in the U.S. have access to broadcast over cable. So they're doing these variety of packages, if you will, that allow them to sort of hedge their bets. In the Phoenix example, by the way, what's interesting is that's a particular local team. And with the NBA, you know, you have local teams that are negotiating distribution rights with their local carriers. So they are going to be working with Gray Television, which is a local broadcast company in the US, to do the distribution there. And then they're also working with a video streamer that can deliver it. The content through some sort of streaming platform. With other leagues like the NFL, those are mostly negotiated at the national level. And so those conversations are going to be a little bit different. The thing I'm really interested to see, or it's sort of the bellwether, most of the leagues have struck their big long-term, you know, five, six, 10-year distribution agreements already. The big one coming up is the NBA in 2024 Mm -hmm. and how they structure some of their deals is going to be very indicative of how fast the cable bundle collapses.
0: Do you have any feel for the degree to which putting a whole bunch of really important sports games behind really expensive cable paywalls reduced the number of sports fans in the country and is there a way in which like if this starts moving back towards broadcast in the long term that's going to be good for the teams because it's just going to be it's going to make the sports more accessible and easier to get into as a fan
1: so with the cable model what's interesting is even though it was this very expensive paywall felix we had so much muscle memory as a country of accessing our content that way that you actually still had pretty wide distribution for a long time. And by the way, you still do today. I mean, 65 million American households is nothing to balk at, especially when you think that some of the streaming services would kill to have that type of penetration into the U.S. population. So it's been relatively wide up until now. But again, broadcast is wider. I mean, most U.S. households have access. Broadcast. I think the big pain point is going to come is leagues are going to have to experiment with giving rights to certain streamers, and the friction will come with how willing consumers are to experiment and access the programming on those various streaming services. Again, the example, prime example being. The NFL lost viewers when they migrated to Amazon. They seem to be doing pretty well with their YouTube TV deal that's just started this season. They moved rights over from their Sunday ticket package from DirecTV to YouTube TV. But each and every platform is a different gamble. You know, uh, right now, for example, we're trying to figure out who's going to get these NBA rights max Is owned by Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns TNT, which is the cable network that has had historically NBA distribution rights. If you're Adam Silver at the NBA, do you trust that Max, which by the way does not publicly admit how many subscribers they have just for streaming versus access to the cable HBO network, are you going to trust that that is going to be as effective of a distribution channel as, let's say, amazon would be or youtube tv that's what the leagues are going to have to kind of reckon with right now
0: and that brings us back full circle to this whole question of what disney wants to do with espn so let's just sort of tie this off by having you explain because this is the bit that i don't understand what is it that disney stands to gain by partnering with a streamer who might take a minority stake in espn
1: For one, ESPN just announced a big betting partnership. They're going to license their brand to do ESPN bet. And when you do those types of deals where you're thinking about things like betting in real time, you need partners who have a very good understanding of building products that eliminate things like latency, that can do digital engagement, that have a channel into consumer commerce. That is not something that ESPN historically has had a lot of experience with. And so I think partnering with a company that can help them digitize and make more money out of their programs, whether it's a streaming company that's connected to a commerce platform, Amazon, uh, or a streaming company that has experience working with sports betting, that might be very helpful to them. I I,
0: I am now, I've suddenly realized that a sports game is not a movie that you sit back and watch. It's actually a game that you play with like in-app purchases. It's more like video games. And then instead of making in-app purchases, you're, doing in-app betting?
1: You know what, Felix, fascinating. It used to be very passive. It used to be that you just watched a game. And that has changed so dramatically in the past few years, particularly with betting. But there's also fantasy. And there's so many other ways that fans can engage in real time. And so you have to have really serious digital knowledge to be able to facilitate all of that extra oppor- you know, financial opportunity. And that's why I think Disney's looking for a strategic partner for ESPN. The big question, though, that I have, Felix, is that Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, has said that he is potentially looking to sell all of Disney's linear television assets, which is not just some of these long-tail cable networks like Freeform and Disney Channel. That also includes ABC, which is one of the big for broadcast networks in the United States. And the challenge is, Jimmy Pitaro, chair of ESPN, told me this last year, ESPN is heavily reliant on its relationship with ABC to be able to land rights. For example, Monday Night Football for this season is going to have 10 games that are distributed on ABC in addition to ESPN. So the question becomes, if Disney offloads ABC does it weaken ESPN's leverage Mm. in distribution negotiations? I don't know the answer to that, but I would assume it is yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, I remember, I don't watch a lot of American sports, but I watched the World Cup. And the World Cup, you know, it was very much this sort of, like, ESPN, ABC thing, and the big games were always on broadcast. And that's obviously one of the big reasons why FIFA wants to partner with them. And if Disney doesn't have a broadcast channel, that would be a problem. But my my question for you is there is pretty much only one company in the world, which is more careful about being squeaky clean and family friendly than Disney. And that's Apple. Do you see any chance that Apple would like dive feet first into inline betting on sporting? I feel like that's just not a very Apple thing to do.
1: It's not. And you have to remember with Apple, their whole game is to optimize hardware sales. That's what they're trying to do. They are investing in software, in media to try to get you to buy more Apple devices. And so when you think about that as their key goal, trying to milk other revenue streams out of programming, it's not completely far-fetched but it's not as necessary uh, as it would be for other types of streaming companies or programming companies that really need that type of sort of software revenue
0: okay so if, if anyone winds up buying this minority stake in espn it's more likely to be amazon or i guess maybe google with youtube it could, it could-
1: it could be Apple. It could be YouTube. I mean, the thing with Apple, they have this, they struck a deal with um, Major League Soccer to do something called MLS Season Pass. And the advantage in working with Apple is that most people in the United States have Apple devices or they use iOS, at least for their phones. And so there are other opportunities to optimize viewership just through the fact that Apple has the best hardware penetration. So they all have very different you know, advantages for various networks, I don't quite know how Bob Iger and Jimmy Pitaro are thinking about it, but I would say I think they're smart to be able to start thinking about it like this because in order for them to ride out what's going to be a very messy transition out of cable, they're going to need all the expertise they can get.
3: And this transition out, it, it I feel like we need to emphasize just how important sports is to cable and to tv and to the whole ecosystem this is like the last stand of tv is sports it's the last thing that people actually you know turn on the television to watch in real time and without it like the decline is going to happen even faster and it's a managed decline
2: it's the only appointment tv left
0: really Mm -hmm. it's also i feel like it's the only thing which you really want to watch on a physical tv and you're not like oh i can just watch this on my phone
1: yeah well, I think you know okay, to the point about this being the thing. For a long time, we always said live news and sports is what's holding up the cable bundle. Mm-hmm. And what we've found in the past few years is it's not live news. Mm-hmm. That's not where the floor is. It's really just sports. And so I think that's one put more of a premium on these sports networks. And then two, just to give your listeners a sense of scale, like in order to distribute Let's say CNN or MSNBC in a cable bundle. the consumer is paying I, you know around a dollar, I think for MSNBC, it's like a dollar twenty five to get that that's what that channel costs in your cable bundle. ESPN's ten dollars. Wow. so and the regional sports networks can be anywhere between a dollar and five dollars. So to give you a sense of how premium that is, ten percent of your cable bundle, which is you know could be hundreds of channels, is literally just one network as ESPN.
0: So if I'm reading you right, Sarah, you're saying that the thing that really supported cable for a long time was this combination of live news and sports. We've discovered that live news is not what it was cracked up to be. We are now discovering that sports is not what used to be cracked up to be and is about to enter this period of precipitous decline. And I can't help but think that there's another company we haven't mentioned yet that is basically a company that is built on precisely those two things, which is live news and sports. So we are super bearish on Fox Corp, right?
1: No, we are super bullish. (laughs) You would think that, Felix. You would think that we would be bearish. But the reason that we're not is because there was a time when Wall Street was really into the Netflix model and they wanted everyone to have subscription streaming services. They were judging everybody by how many subscribers they had. Fox never went that route. They sold their entertainment assets to Disney. They said we're just going to focus on the high cash flow opportunities in front of us, which is, you know, live news and sports. But they didn't fully sacrifice streaming. They instead, you know, started to invest in just free ad-supported streaming. And what we've found is that over the past few years as subscription streaming became too saturated, a lot of momentum was moving into free ad-supported streaming. In fact, ad-supported streaming can be the more lucrative option because you can sometimes reap more revenue per user by selling them ads than you can from their subscription. Hulu, by the way, is the best example of that. You know, more than 70% of Hulu subscribers get the ad supported plan. And so with Fox, Wall Street actually has rewarded them for not dumping all of their profits into a streaming service that is hemorrhaging money the way that all of its competitors have. Mm. And so Fox has actually done okay. And they've been able to use their, you know, their balance sheet to invest in live rights. You mentioned the world cup, Felix Fox distributed the world cup this year, and they have doubled down on some of their college football rights, which has performed very well for them. And their free ad supporting streaming service Tubi has been an enormous success. So Fox has what they've done is they've kind of pulled them out themselves out from competing directly with some of these big Hollywood giants and instead are focused on something very niche. And when the cable bundle goes away, Felix, they have a plan in news. They built the streaming service called Fox nation and their CTO has essentially said, okay, once we transition into the streaming world, we have the technological ability to just move Fox right into that feed And for sports, it is a little bit unclear what they're going to do, but they have a very strong free ad supported network in Tubi that I think is going to insulate them for the time being. So Fox is actually doing all right.
0: And they have a broadcast network too.
1: And they have this broadcast network, correct. So I I feel, and to the point of the conversation earlier, broadcast is not going down in the same way that cable is. You know, Fox still has some cable assets. Fox Sports is a cable network. But they're doing a very good job, by the way, of making it sexy by paying Tom Brady, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to join them. So I actually think that Fox is... In Wall Street's good graces right now, the companies that are not in Wall Street's good graces are the ones that have invested a ton of money in streaming, but they haven't totally let go of cable and that's weighing them down. And the three companies like that are Paramount. You know, they have CBS Sports, they have Paramount Plus, but they've got weighed down by all these Viacom networks.
3: I feel embarrassed for Paramount+. Plus. I mean, anytime <laughs> I see it mentioned or I see it at all, I just feel like embarrassed. Like, what is going on? No one's it's- just, no one's doing that.
1: It's not big enough, and you know the same thing could be said for Warner Brothers Discovery. And we all know they're looking to go bigger at some point, merge with someone. And then you have, of course, NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast. They've owned it for about twelve years now. Media insiders would speculate that those three companies are going to need to find merger partners in the next year in order to be able to compete with the Netflixes and the Amazons. Of the is it
0: going to be a mega merger of all three of them? That would that would be blocked immediately, right? You can't have two broadcast networks merging.
1: Correct. So, you know, CBS, Paramount couldn't, for example, combine with NBC Universal unless they agreed to divest CBS. But when they divest CBS, what's left? I mean, the Viacom networks, the studios that make content for them, they can do some lucrative work for you know, theatrical distribution for merchandising, but like the cable networks are not going to be it for them long term. So if you're Paramount, I, I don't know how, what benefit you have in spinning out CBS. If you are NBCU, you know, and you're looking to potentially merge, this is why I think a lot of people think that Warner Brothers Discovery would be a better fit for them because they don't have to worry about any major divestitures of a broadcast network. Those assets seem to complement each other. We could do a whole other podcast on how they would the news assets would complement each other with NBC News and CNN. But this podcast is about sports.
0: <laughs> yes. Sarah Fisher, I feel I've learned more in these 30 minutes than I have in the previous three years. I am astonished at how much information you just carry around in your brain. It is a thing to behold.
1: Felix, that's how I feel when I read markets on the weekends. And it makes me so stressed of how much I don't know about markets. So thank you guys for keeping me and Emily, you know, during the weekday carrying that through for keeping me informed because I feel the same way when I read you guys.
0: So it's been amazing having you on. We will bring you back next time we have anything to know about anything media, because clearly you are the queen of all media. Thank you so much.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
0: Okay, so let's segue out of media for a minute and back into technology, its distant cousin. Emily. Yo, yo, yo. On a scale from 1 to 10, how deranged is Mark Andreessen's techno-optimist manifesto what came out on the internet this week?
3: <laughs> oh, well, if like 10 would be the Unabomber's manifesto, <laughs> I'm going to go with Eight for Mark Andreessen's list of resentments and enemies and techno optimist future, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm going to go with an eight.
0: Elizabeth, where would you put it?
2: I would put it a little bit higher at a nine. But if the, <laughs> oh. if the by the way, if the baseline is Mark Andreessen and, and stuff that he writes all the time, it's pretty par for the course. It's just extra mm. long.
3: Well, we should say kind of what it, Mark Andreessen, yeah. the famous venture capitalist who uh, was it now like 12 years ago, wrote another well-known blog posts about how software is eating the world that seems kind of true i mean that conversation we just had with sarah fisher is kind of that's it technology did eat the world or eat the world of tv and he wrote this week another manifesto what is it called let's
0: the techno optimist manifesto
3: 5200 words techno optimist manifesto
0: technology will save the planet
3: yes The generous interpretation is how technology is wonderful and will save the planet and the world. And all of technology's boosters and creators are wonderful and they should be given free reign to do whatever they need to do because they will be saving lives.
0: And in fact, they're not just saving lives. Technology, this is the thing I wrote about in my newsletter this week, technology and entrepreneurship in particular is a form of philanthropy. (laughs) It is a form of giving back. And if you are making money in entrepreneurship and technology or venture capital or something like that, then as a rule of thumb, Mark Andreessen has hopefully come out and said that for every dollar you make, you have done $50 of philanthropic good in the world. And so if Mark Andreessen has made a billion dollars at Andreessen Horowitz, that means he has created $50 billion of philanthropic good in the world, and he is one of the world's greatest philanthropists.
2: And just for context, you know this manifesto is being dropped against a backdrop of particularly Silicon Valley billionaires being criticized in the media and by people in general for wealth hoarding. And you know, coming up with self serving rationalizations for what they do when technology does damage. So I think it's worth reading just a tiny bit of this manifesto.
0: Oh my god, here we which go. Which is titled Is this is this gonna be like Vogon poetry that all all of the slate money listeners are gonna start like having their brains melt?
2: No. no? I'm only okay. gonna I'm only gonna read three sentences. Okay. And conveniently right. they're the first three sentences. Okay. under the not at all modest headline of lies. So <laughs> the first three sentences. We are being lied to. We are told that technology takes our jobs, reduces our wages, increases inequality, threatens our health, ruins the environment, degrades our society, corrupts our children, impairs our humanity, threatens our future, and is ever on the verge of ruining everything. We are told to be angry, bitter, and resentful about technology. So, I just want to point out that if you replace the word technology with wealth hoarding, these statements might kind of make sense.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, it it is a classic straw man, right? I don't think I know anyone or even read anyone who would say all of those things. He's creating this list of enemies, and he actually has an enemies list lower down, which includes things like trust and safety and tech ethics.
2: Ethics. And you're like,
0: (laughs) yeah, because ethics is the enemy. And He does that in the context of trying to paint technology as this great moral force, and specifically AI as this great ethical force. He comes out and says quite explicitly, if we don't give AI research free reign and develop it as quickly and aggressively as possible, that is tantamount to murder, because of the way in which AI is going to cure a whole bunch of diseases and save a bunch of lives.
2: Yeah, another contextual point, what he's laying out here is basically a version of accelerationism, which is a philosophy that a lot of Silicon Valley people have been embracing, that says you should accelerate technological change as quickly as possible. And in the process, it'll wipe out governments and infrastructure, but that's fine because the outcome is that you'll end up with a system run by a kind of monarchy where the king is essentially a big CEO.
3: (laughs) I mean, it's sad because the basic point that technology has been good for society and humanity isn't wrong at all, you know? We well, are we are mostly. healthier now than we were yeah. what three hundred years ago. the The invention of electricity mm-hmm. was very good and helpful to the us. Green
0: revolution, you all know, good stuff, Medicine. all amazing things. Yeah, the fact that we can feed 7 billion, eight eight billion people on this planet yes. is a technological miracle.
3: There are miracles abounding everywhere, but like to have this crazed kind of one lens view and not to acknowledge the obvious downsides he doesn't really even mention climate he he says technology has solved poverty at one point which is obviously not true
0: you know how for every problem there's a simple and wrong solution he he has a very simple solution to the climate crisis it's amazing he just comes out and says well we can solve we there's this we which he uses like a million times in this essay we can solve the climate problem incredibly easily all we need to do is build a bunch of nuclear power stations and on one level like I think most environmentalists at this point would agree that nuclear needs to be a key part of the way that we decarbonize but the idea that it's this panacea and that nuclear on its own is just going to solve all of the problems he doesn't even talk about you know the incredible technological breakthroughs that have been made in things like solar it's like it's very odd
2: well he also just reformulates basic economics in a way that Works for him and is very self serving. So there's a line in here that says there are only three sources of growth population growth, natural resource utilization, and technology. And the way I think most economists view it is that they, there are three primary drivers of growth, but technology is one of them, but capital and labor are the other two. Andreessen conveniently glosses over the role of labor in all of this. Well, yeah, he they, really does.
0: What he's saying there is that labor is just this sort of, there's this lump of labor and its productivity is entirely a function of technology. So if you combine what he's talking about, population growth, which is labor and technology, that gives you all of the productivity increases that you get from labor. That's basically what he's saying there.
2: Well, it's a little more than that. I mean, the people who are quoting Nick Land and talking about population growth are also talking about something darker. There's some Venn diagram overlap between the people who are talking about population growth and the people who are espousing race science or suggesting that women are inferior. And when they talk about population growth, they're often very explicit that they want a certain kind of person to be part of that growth. And it's usually, you know, a high-skilled, over-educated person who just happens to be white male.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I would read that into this manifesto. I think Andreessen is very... Clear. I mean, it's possible. I'm not saying it's wrong, but but I do think it's clear that Andreessen is pro population growth in general. Like he's aligned with Elon Musk on that one, and that he thinks that you know eight billion is a good start, but it would be even better if we had 100 billion or a trillion. You know, and that he has these visions of conquering space and all of this kind of stuff. And yeah, at that point, you know, it all just becomes sci-fi. Really,
3: it is interesting what you're saying, Elizabeth, about the absence of labor in his manifesto. like He talks a lot about falling prices. Falling prices benefit everyone who buys goods and services, which is to say everyone. And it's like, well, okay, but how do workers fit into that? He has another section where he thinks that what's going to happen, he believes that we should push to drop prices near zero, driving the the quality of life into the stratosphere. And I, I was really puzzled about that, honestly. Well, I
0: mean, so friend of the pod, Manu Sardia, who wrote a whole book about this called Treconomics. This is basically Treconomics, right? This is the economics of Star Trek. This is the utopian economics of a world in which no one wants anything because the cost of everything is essentially zero. And you can just, you know, you can ask your machine to give you whatever you want and it will give it to you. And it is this glorious utopian world. And he does see us moving towards that as i say it's sci-fi
3: what but how do you reconcile that with what he does i mean this is a man worth nearly what two billion dollars or something and the tech industry is an industry that runs on money there's no incentive to push prices to like what i don't understand how to reconcile those two things
0: that that's an interesting question this is not an investment thesis this is a, a slightly different type of as I say, you know, science fiction inflected, mildly deranged manifesto, where it intersects with reality in worrying ways, I think is less about any kind of hypocrisy involved in Andreessen himself being a billionaire, and much more in the fact that he is the longest serving external director of Facebook, mm. which I should guess we should be calling Meta. He's been on the Meta board for 15 years now, longer than you know, anyone other than Mark Zuckerberg. And he clearly has Zuckerberg's ear and they're very close. And if you remember when Zuckerberg took full control of Facebook and, you know, ensured that his voting control would be set in stone for him and his descendants, even if his economic stake decreased substantially, it was Mark Andreessen who pushed that through the board and said, what a wonderful idea it was because Mark Zuckerberg is, Such a genius. And the fact that he is coming down so aggressively against things like tech ethics and trust and safety that are so central to any social network and especially to Meta is very worrying to me. I don't think someone who writes something like this really belongs on the board of Meta.
2: I mean, that is a core accelerationist idea, though. It's a kind of philosophy of nihilism, it doesn't see a place for ethics in the system.
3: Yeah, he on his list of bad ideas are social responsibility, <laughs> <laughs> risk management, tech ethics. These are the bad
0: ideas. Yeah, risk management. To, like, I mean, this is the crazy thing about about no optimism in general, right? He more than anyone else understands how the power of technology is increasing at you know some crazy exponential rate. You have to worry about the risks involved with that, you know, because mm-hmm. you know even if technology has been positive in the past, which it hasn't, you can't just assume that it's going to continue to be 100% positive in the future. And especially when, you know, we live in a world which still lives very much in the the shadow of Hiroshima and of the very visible terrors that have been enabled by technology, you have to worry about the existential risk associated with technology. And a lot of people in Silicon Valley do, but he just, Doesn't,
2: but this is another way in which the manifesto is self-serving. The billionaire class doesn't worry too much about these risks because they assume that if the shit hits the fan, they have their compounds in New Zealand or their pods in Mars.
0: I disagree. I think this is actually an area where Andreessen has significantly different opinions to a lot of the billionaire class. I think if you look at someone like Dustin Moskovitz or the Effective Altruism crew, who are very influential on Sam Bankman Fried, or a lot of other sort of grand thinkers, you know, Sam Altman being a prime example of OpenAI, they really care a lot about the downside risks and mitigating them. And in fact, the whole reason why OpenAI was founded in the first place was because they were worried about those risks and they wanted to address those risks. I think Andreessen's kind of in left field here, even by Silicon Valley billionaire standards.
3: The other thing I wanted to say was the lead of this, whatever this is, this manifesto that Elizabeth read earlier, and the straw man argument that people aren't celebrating technology or technologists is just wrong. It's just wrong. This is someone who is obviously very sensitive to any criticism at all about technology, criticism that is valid, often, and necessary, as Felix was saying. The idea that <laughs> society, media, that we're not celebrating the innovations and inventions that the tech world comes up with is just flat out false. I mean, just look at the excitement around chat GPT last year into this year. I mean, it's it's just wrong.
2: Some of it is just (laughs) ridiculous. the tech industry has not had scrutiny for as long as say the finance industry has, because it's it's relatively young. And I think only in the last probably decade has there been really deep tech reporting that's been slightly critical. And for people like Andresen, you know, they've seen that transformation, and particularly if you're a little bit thin-skinned and you live in a industry bubble all the way over on the West Coast, it's easy for people like Andresen to imagine that the tech industry is being persecuted in some way, when really it's getting probably far less criticism than other
0: industries get. What, one of yeah. the interesting things in the sort of history of Mark Andresen, and I would Really, I mean, please, someone out there, write a Mark Andreessen biography. I mean, that's the big book that hasn't been written yet. And I th- I would be super fascinated because he has changed in very interesting ways, just like over the amount of time that I've known him. And there were a couple of very important moments in the sort of mental evolution of Mark Andreessen, one of which was when he had to apologize for a tweet. And he'd never had to apologize for a tweet before, but he basically tweeted that colonialism was great for India. And this caused like a, a huge uproar across the entire subcontinent. And eventually as a Facebook board member, he had to sort of say, oh, I'm sorry about that, which was clearly something he didn't believe. And he kind of still believes that colonialism was <laughs> great for India. And then the other thing that happened was the John Carew investigation into Theranos, which he was not an investor in Theranos. And as we've Talked about on this show in the past, Theranos was not really a VC backed company, but that was the point at which he started going on this mass blocking spree of journalists. He always used to be incredibly accessible to journalists. And then he basically, whenever he would see a tweet from a journalist saying anything rude about Theranos or Elizabeth Holmes, he would block that person. And that was, for me, I think, the point at which he stopped trying to build his worldview up out of the facts on the ground and when he started just becoming a sort of dogmatic idealist where he started with where he wanted to go and then reverse engineered the facts to suit his agenda.
3: Should we explain why he matters? Like, why are we talking about him? Why is this guy's manifesto so...
0: Well, I mean, the Facebook thing, I think, is the main thing. Yeah.
2: Well, honestly. also, you know, in the tech industry, Andreessen and Horowitz is one of the larger and more prestigious VC firms. They've funded mm-hmm. a lot more companies than Facebook. And he's considered, you know, I I hate the term, but thought leader, people in the industry listen to what he says.
0: I, I will say that it's not clear to me the degree to which he still represents Andreessen Horowitz. I feel like the partners at Andreessen Horowitz, Ben Horowitz absolutely included, mostly still talk to the press, are relatively approachable, tend to say things that are relatively sensible, And that the firm and Mark Andreessen himself seem, in my mind, to be growing a little bit further apart. And Mm. I would imagine, and I have no reason to believe this, but I would imagine that there are quite a lot of people within Andreessen Horowitz who are looking at this manifesto and rolling their eyes and going, you are not doing us any favors here at all.
2: Oh, Um, I'm sure they are. But I I think uh, they don't, as far as I understand it, they don't have a super centralized communication structure. (laughs) (laughs) So...
0: But yes, we should have a numbers round. Elizabeth, you have a number this week?
2: I do. So my number is 30,000 and that's a dollars and that's how much you would pay to be in a new club on Manhattan's west side called Carbone Privato. And it's basically there's a restaurant here in New York called Carbone that's owned by two restaurateurs. That's very popular and very she and you know you go there and you see celebrities and stuff like that. But this is a new club where if you pay that fee, you get to go to a private restaurant where you can order, if you give them 48 hours notice, pretty much anything you want. Like you can bring your grandma's recipe for meatloaf in and they will make it per your specifications. And someone asked whether they'd still make it if the meatloaf recipe sucked and they they say that they will. So I
3: would make your grandma's meatloaf for thirty thousand dollars. That's not <laughs> impressive.
0: I didn't have a number, but you've given me an idea for a number, which <laughs> is a question I have for all you lovely Slate Money listeners. My number is 500 million, which is the amount of dollars that Cipriani wants to raise to build out a global network of members' clubs along the lines of the one they already have in Manhattan, and I think they have a couple of other in other cities, and they want to make this a much bigger international thing along the lines of Soho House. Soho House, of course, is now, I mean, it's spacked. it went public. Obviously, major food group is now getting into this act with Carbone Privado. There is another big company which owns Fotografiska and Neuer House that's trying to do high-end members clubs. It seems to me that this niche of, we want to sell very expensive memberships to rich people in cities around the world has exploded over the past few years. And my, my question for the Slate Money listeners is, please write in at slate.com if you have seen any decent estimates of, like, what is the total addressable market here? It just strikes me that between the Aman Club that just opened up in New York and all of these high-end you know, the core club and all of these clubs with five or six figure initiation fees, like who how big is the number of people who could conceivably be the target market here and how many clubs do you expect them to be a part of because it seems to me that everyone wants in on this but
2: i think it would be really hard to quantify because if you're really targeting the one percent of the one percent they can join unlimited clubs and they probably have zero price sensitivity
0: around this thing so maybe that's it maybe that maybe the whole plan is that it's you just have so many multiple memberships, you lose track. I mean, that was, I do remember meeting a source once in Los Angeles. There's some, one of these clubs, there's something, San Vicente Bungalows. That was it. And he was like, oh yeah, I've been a member of this for the past two years, but this is the first time I've been here. And you're like, oh, okay.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You just keep it in your back pocket. If you're in the neighborhood, it's like it's a nice-to-have, you know?
0: I think that's the way you have to start thinking about these clubs, is if you think about them as expensive, you've got it wrong. The point is that they're not expensive if you're rich enough. They're just like a random line item on a monthly and they probably all statement. rate
2: it off as a
0: business expense, right? I have no idea. <laughs> Emily, what's your number?
3: My number is 3,100. That is the number of miles that participants in the Sri Chimnoy self-transcendence 3100 mile race run. <laughs> Over 51 days, this race started in August and it's wrapping up on the day we tape, which is Friday.
0: Is this like in Brooklyn or Queens or something and they just run around in a circle?
3: It is exactly. It, it takes place in Jamaica, Queens, and everyone runs basically a half mile loop around a block in Jamaica. And it starts every day at 6 a.m. You can go as late as midnight. So you have 18 hours. And you basically, if you want to get the 3,100 in, you have to run 60 miles a day. And it's been going on for a while. And I had no idea about this. And I would never want to do it. I take
2: it. You also have to be unemployed to run this race. Or or just just, just, take, just take a
0: couple months <laughs> off work. Yeah.
3: I mean, if you run with your phone, maybe you could do it and still work.
0: But Just be on a lot of Zoom calls. <laughs>
3: I, I could do it, I bet. I mean, if you run fast, you don't have to do the full 18 hours, then you can put in some hours working. You can go pretty slow and still clock the 3100, but it's, I think it's more of like a mental.
0: It is a kind of desolate part of Queens. There's no sort of fabulous scenery. You're just running around the same tiny loop over and over yes. and over again. And it becomes this... The idea, if I understand it, is that it's this kind of meditative experience. Yes. And if you do this every day for two months, like you reach some kind of weird transcendence and also lots of blisters.
3: Yes. And they give you, and the food that is supplied to the racers is all vegetarian.
0: I, I, I would love to know if this is good for you or bad for you. I suspect it's probably bad for you.
3: Yeah, I, I, I can't speak to that, Felix. But it does <laughs> as, seem like... As, as the
0: marathon bad. runner among us.
3: <laughs> Not yet. Shh. Shh. Don't, Don't jinx say it. Anything.
0: Don't jinx it. I think we'll wrap it up there. We have a slate plus on the survey of consumer finances, which good news, actually, in that. Otherwise, thanks for listening. Thanks for sending us emails. at slate.com Thanks to jasmine molly for producing and we will be back on monday with another slate. money goes to the movies with amanda lang talking about blackberry hope to see you there